Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Dr. Monique McHenry. Monique is a botanist with a background in plant diversity and evolution. She is the director of the University of Vermont Cannabis Science and Medicine and Plant Biology Certificate Programs, director of the Medical Cannabis Center for Research and Education, and co-director of the Cannabis Pharmacology course at the University of Vermont Medical School. She is also co-founder of the Case Institute, a plant-based pharmaceutical research enterprise. Dr. McHenry completed her bachelor's and master's of science at the University of Colorado and her PhD at the University of Vermont. Now on to the show. Hi, Monique. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, Ted. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, Can we start off with a little bit of your background? Can you tell me a little about yourself? Sure. So my background in in plant biology, um, currently I am a professor in the pharmacology department at the Lawner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. And I was one of those interdisciplinary hires, so I could teach about the different uh, chemicals found in plants and how they affect the human body. Um, And I am the director of the Medical Cannabis Center for Research and Education at UVM, and I run a bunch of our uh, educational programs in cannabis. That's great. I definitely want to talk some more about what you have going on at UVM. Um, But can we start off with just a real uh, basic foundation here in terms of the different classes of cannabinoids? Sure. You know, basically there's, there's three classes of cannabinoids and sometimes people miss, misspeak about them. And, you know, even the top level scientists can interchangeably use the word cannabinoids, which can really mean all three. Um, but specifically there's the endocannabinoids that are produced and found in the human body There's the phytocannabinoids that are produced by the plant, hence the phyto in front of them. And then there's synthetic cannabinoids, and those are produced in the laboratory um, and sometimes used for therapeutic treatments. So as a a cultivator, we're obviously most interested in uh, phytocannabinoids. Um, What are the different types of of cannabinoids, and how might we um, cultivate uh, from, you know, for best practice in terms of selecting for uh, not just uh, better yields, but also consistency? And I know that's a big question. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, if we take a step back and we think about what phytocannabinoids are, um, you know, they're, they're a secondary metabolite that the plant produces. And the plants produce tons of secondary metabolites. And secondary metabolites, are usually synthesized for specific functions where your primary metabolites are synthesized for essential functions. So these secondary metabolites can often be produced very inconsistently between plants that have genetic, um, are genetically identical. And it sometimes is due to the environment. Sometimes we don't know why the plants produce, you know, different chemicals at different times. And so with phytocannabinoids, the research has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, there's, there's papers back into the 70s 
as to why different climates have plants that are producing different amounts of THC, Delta 9 THC, for example. And it seems to be that different stressors sometimes cause the plant to produce more phytocannabinoid, especially Delta 9 THC, and uh, other environments can seem to make more yield. So the plant actually produces more in this cat, in this case, you know, biomass being flower uh, of the plant, but the chemicals might be, might be at lower levels. So the percentage of um, THC per gram might be lower in those plants in different growing environments. I wanted to touch on that with you. So is there a sort of a genetic maximum in terms of the amount of THC a plant can produce and therefore the variance in vegetative biomass would determine the concentration of THC in the, in the flower? Well, Chad, I mean, I think that's, that's probably a million dollar question. Excuse the, you know, cliche there, but (laughs) there has been some, some hypotheses in the literature that there is this dilution effect where yeah, there is a maximum and whether it's a genetic component or something else in the biosynthetic pathway, we don't know, but there's a a maximum of what the plant can produce in terms of, you know, particular phytocannabinoids. Um, But we just, it doesn't seem like anybody has really had solid evidence to say yes to that or no to that. Okay. So it's a, it's a possibility, but we, we don't know. Um, You know, a big buzzword, lately in the last year or two has been crop steering this idea of sort of targeted plant stress for you know selecting um is a way of increasing i guess cannabinoid production and thc specifically um you know i i've been of the impression that every real life facility has plant stress and we don't I'm still at the point where we want to reduce it, but do we know enough from a research perspective to really figure out like what triggers really work across the wide range of genetics that we see in cannabis production right now? Possibly, you know, I can, I can give you some literature out, you know, that's out there. So back in the seventies, actually specifically 1975 Kaufman and Gentner, these um, two authors published a report and they found that um, low magnesium increases the amount of THC and CBD content. And so I think, you know, a lot of uh, cultivators out there right now play with their calcium and magnesium ratios. Uh, so there is published literature out there that suggests you lower the magnesium, you increase the THC and CBD. Um, other stressors that have been shown to I guess, increase the amount of THC is um, UVB radiation. So in the 80s, a paper by Linden and colleagues um, said that plants with higher levels of UVB radiation had higher amounts of THC. And then we can go to recent papers. Like, um, I think I've actually had a podcast with, um, with, with Kaplan. He was a graduate student up in Canada and he has a lot of work published. Um, and so his stuff from 2018, where he intentionally, you know, applied drought stress, and he found that um, that if you increase uh, intentional drought seven weeks into reproductive stage, um, 
you have these major phytocannabinoids, so THC again, increase. Yes, I did have, uh, I had Darren Kaplan on the show a while back. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. Um, it's wonderful to see the new research that's, that's coming out. Um, you know, some of the more common practices that I've seen are, uh, you know, more, ex- more extreme pruning, removing all of the, the fan leaves, and also uh, targeted drought or nutrient stress, um, you know, some sort of osmotic shock towards the very end near um, closer to a harvest date, you know, maybe anywhere from a week out from harvest. Have you seen any research on, on either of those topics? Yes. So the, the intentional drought was the cat was um, that's Kaplan. He, he did that. And I haven't seen any published literature on selective pruning yet. Um, but I, I don't want to doubt that it's, that it's out there. We haven't done anything like that at UVM. We've definitely done, uh, you know, played with amount of nitrogen and found just um, Kaplan again during his PhD uh, did another study on changing the amount of um, nitrogen. And there is a sweet spot where you get, you know, a maximum biomass yield and highest uh, percentage of, of THC. And he published that work and UVM has put out reports on it too. So um, nutrients are key, absolutely. Uh, some of the work we did at UVM showed that, you know, if you, if you add too much of, uh, you know, kind of premixed bottle made nutrients, sometimes it's just leaching right off. We, we checked our runoff and we found, well, that was pointless. And you do increase the biomass of the plant, but you see that dilution effect with THC where you don't have the same percentage of THC per gram that you would have um, in plants that are actually producing less biomass. Oh, that's really interesting. So you had two genetically identical plants and one produced significantly more biomass than the other under, you know, slightly different nutrient conditions. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So we saw that with THC, with CBD, it was a little bit more consistent. And it seems like when we, you know, applied, um, stresses to the plant or change the nutrient uh, regime with CBD, we didn't see that dilution effect as much. Um, and again, genetically identical plants. So we, they were clones of the same plant. Um, but with THC, we definitely saw that, uh, you know, you hit a point where you seem to kind of maximize the amount of THC the plant would produce, even though it would produce more plant matter in, in dried flowers. But with CBD, we didn't we didn't quite see that in a, in a couple of years of trials. That's really interesting. Is this a, a published uh, accessible paper, or is this one that um, has not been published yet? With the C, right? So with the CBD, um, that work you can find. Um, it's Dr. Heather Darby writes reports every year, um, and she puts them up on the Industrial Hemp uh, website at at the UV, UVM through UVM extension program. And so you can see the results of, you know, the different nutrient gradients as well as, um, you know, everything I mentioned there for CBD. For THC, that work isn't published because it was done in conjunction with a dispensary here. It couldn't be done at, at UVM because of um, the legality issues. Oh, that makes sense. Um, well, yeah. 
Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the UVM program and what sort of um, offerings you guys have as well as some of the research that you're currently doing? Sure, I would love to. I did want to mention there was one other thing, hor hormones. Did you want to get into that? Um, oh, like we have, so I know, yeah. Absolutely. So yes. jazz, people are also, I think, applying jasmonic acid, right? And there has been a paper recently published um, by um, Epicala and colleagues in 2021, so just last year. And in that, they show that jasmonic acid, so JA, as a lot of people know it as, um, after two weeks, can increase the amount of THC. So that's another, I think that's another thing some cultivators have been doing is using these plant morphogenes or, or plant hormones applied to um, different stages of flowering to see what changes the, the amounts of phytocannabinoids there. But sorry for that interruption. Oh. I would love to talk about the UVM program. Well, let's, why don't we talk a little more about um, hormones while we're on the topic and then, because <laughs> we have plenty of time still. Um, right. That's that's really. I actually just saw an interesting paper on triacontinol from uh, 2020 by uh, I'm going to mispronounce the name Shiastul Islam. I reached out to him directly, but um, one of the challenges is since he's not working in cannabis and he's in a, another country, it, it's sometimes hard to get those folks to come on the podcast. But um, what what sort of research are you seeing around uh, plant growth hormones, or what what sort of maybe speculation do you have of of what might work well with cannabis or hemp production? Well, I mean, if I think about the plant's reaction to, you know, different plant morphogens or, or wounding, so like you said, selective pruning, you know, there's usually a, a spike in calcium levels. Um, and I would say that's almost a stress. And when you have a calcium spike in, in plants, just like you can have in humans as a stress, you know, I would hypothesize that that, that could increase the amount of THC. But I haven't really seen anyone delve into that science yet. But, um, you know, that seems to be an expectation, you know, at, at a more scientific level of what is going on inside the plant. Um, and so, you know, what hormones would, would cause that reaction in the plant? Um, you know, I don't know, you know, jasmonic acid seems to you know, auxin is another huge plant hormone or morphogen. Some people like to refer to it as, and it's responsible for cool things like sunflowers turning towards the light. You know, it collects in the bending side. Um, so perhaps, you know, her hormones or morphogens like that are involved in um, some of the phytocannabinoid inconsistencies, but I haven't seen much in the literature on that. So I don't know what other hormones you know, I would suggest um, besides um, the ones we've already talked about. Yeah. So for folks that are, I guess as an organic um, producer myself, um, it's, it's hard to find organic sources of a lot of these hormones that will actually translate into mm. plant available in another plant. Like I know for a long time, I just... I would apply a alpha meal to myself th thinking I was getting triacontinol. Um, but in reality, from talking to a plant hormone expert, it sounds like it's, it's quite difficult to do. Like it, it um, decomposes rather rapidly unless applied at you know, high levels, like an alfalfa mulch. Um, 
how as an organic producer might we um, access some of these tools or if, if at all, I guess be the question. Hmm. You know, Chad, that is a great question. And you might've, you might've stumped me at that one because I was so thinking about what happens in the lab, you know, where we're wearing purple gloves and, you know, we're using special hoods, the special flows that we aren't worrying about what the chemical would do to us as humans because we're not ingesting it. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right. If you're trying to grow something organically, you know, what, what would be a good source? I might have to think about that and talk to some of the people at UVM Extension to see what ideas they would have um, because I don't know because we're, we're not necessarily doing that in the lab and these papers that I'm talking about, these other researchers aren't necessarily doing it in the lab. Um, and so to translate that into a field science, I'd have to, I'd have to think about that one. Okay. No, that's, that's fine. I could, I could get you an answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, sometimes I don't know is the best answer. Uh, it's cause I know like, for example, with jasmonic acid, there's commercially available, I could go buy jazz spray for roses today. Um, and go spray it on my plants. But um, are there other potential risks associated with it? Because that would be an off-label use. I just want to, I don't want people listening to the podcast to necessarily get ahead of themselves and end up in a situation where they may be doing something that could be unsafe for consumption. So um, right. can you touch on that a little bit before we get too far ahead of the, on, on to another topic? Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, I think that's a great emphasis point is that, you know, people listening to this podcast from an agricultural perspective or even from a production or a medical perspective, you know, some of the things we're talking about are done in scientific settings, right? It doesn't mean they should be applied to um, something for human consumption, right? Like, yes, you know, there are synthetic cannabinoids out there that people use off-label, you know, approved by the FDA, people are using off-label, but I definitely don't encourage people to do that. And same with um, pesticide applications um, is, you know, there's not that many pesticides with cannabis on their label. And so I don't want to encourage anyone to use things off-label. Um, what harm could it do? You know, we don't know because there haven't been those same kind of studies or if they are, they're in their infancy, um, you know, a couple years in of, you know, at what point um, is it safe to apply certain pesticides to cannabis because, you know, it will be inhaled. And a lot of people say, well, why can't you just compare it to the tobacco industry? And I mean, that's a whole can of worms. Do, do we really want to compare it to the tobacco industry? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's safe to answer that question, but um, it's hard because you can't really compare cannabis to lettuce. You know, probably 10 years ago, we were writing white papers to try to help uh, legislatures determine, you know, what levels of pesticides are safe and, you know, when can they be applied? You know, what levels of residues? And the truth is you can suggest what is known about other crops, but with cannabis, there's not enough quite known yet. Um, so as you all know, especially um, people in different states, every state has its own list of allowable um, levels. And sometimes it's not based on science, unfortunately. 
Yeah, that brings up another question for me. Uh, you know, you've listed some great research to support some of these ideas um, and, and concepts. And, and as a as a curious grower, um, I'm always looking for more information, trying to learn more. Um, where what resources does the average layman have for you know finding information like some of the ones you listed? Um, how do we go searching for that? Because, you know, if I go to Google Scholar, I can type in, you know, magnesium, for example, and THC and get probably like a, a ton of different hits. Um, what, what do you recommend? Are there any like publications to follow or anything that you, that you really like to use for that sort of thing? Well, Ted, I think you, you kind of hit the, you know, nail on its head there. You, you, you had a great suggestion. I mean, that is the most, uh, you know, path of least resistance is to look in Google Scholar. Um, and then, you know, a trick there is to, once you find a publication that's interesting, if it's older, look at the papers that are citing it. Um, and a lot of our public libraries, or, you know, if you're connected at all to any kind of research institute or, um, or university, then you have the availability to do what's called cross library loan. So even if your public library doesn't have that resource electronically, you could ask the um, librarian, the reference librarian usually, to help, you know, ask for that from a library that does. So, you know, it is a little more challenging to get access to some of these articles. And fortunately, a lot of things are um, open source now. So they're still peer reviewed. So they still go through that scientific rigor, you know, to get up to publication status but they don't cost money because unfortunately the ones that aren't, you know, it's quite expensive. It's like $35 to download a PDF of an article that I'm referencing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for the, for the lay person, I think Google Scholar is a great start. And then they're looking at um, the sources that cite it. Review articles are a treasure, right? So if, if you have a scientist that basically compiles the literature and finds, um, you know, everything they can, publishes it as a review, of, you know, a, a little slice for that particular time of all the past research done. Those are, those are huge finds, you know, as well as textbooks too, um, especially textbooks that are going to have a reference list so that you know somebody took the time to actually find if this information was scientific or not. And I think there's some some up and coming, you know, cultivation books out there um, that are helping the old kind of Bibles that people have used in the past. Oh, that's wonderful. I wasn't aware of any upcoming books. That's that's great. Um, one question I thought about as I was listening to you talk about research is how does one extrapolate research effectively because I realize what happens in the lab doesn't necessarily translate to uh, commercial production or um, you know real life real life production um, how how do we take you know say some of these ideas um, and, and translate them into actual production in a way that makes sense without drawing too many conclusions like for example like I did with the alfalfa and tricontinol would be a great example like I see that tricontinol has these benefits, so I make this assumption. Um, 
the work wasn't done on cannabis like you know what what can we really do there as from a from a cultivation perspective right so i mean i think there's there's one way for for the brave people is in any article you're going to see a corresponding author and it will have um their contact information using an email address and just you know ask the author first if they know a different um a different way or how to translate what they did in the lab to the field um if not uh you know you can you can ask the you know knowledgeable people at at your local uh, hydroponic or, or garden store right if they know uh, a particular methodology to utilize you know jasmonic acid but I like, like we talked about with cannabis, it is harder because again, you'll probably be using things off label and perhaps like you were saying, um, incorrectly. So, I mean, really the best answer is for people like you to have these awesome podcasts <laughs> where, uh, you have researchers who say, oh yeah, this is exactly how you should do it. But, um, or you, you, you take a class, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, uh, cannabis classes out there where uh, like ours, we bring in subject matter experts who go into detail um, and, you know, you have question and answer sessions, but yeah, it's basically getting the scientists behind a microphone so they can help answer. Yeah. And I, I do want to caution people from drawing too many inferences from a paper, like um, even just, for example, the, the Kaplan paper on, on drought stress would be an example of this. Like, um, you know, he got a very, you know, statistically significant response with a very particular cultivar under, you know, very specific conditions that may lead us to believe there's a trend there, but there's absolutely room for replication um, over time with various cultivars under various conditions to see if this is actually the case. Um, I think we're still in our infancy in, in cannabis in, in that regard. And, um, you know, I, I just hear a lot of people confidently saying things in the cultivation space based off of one paper or one idea that um, maybe we need to just take a step back and, um, you know, take a little more of a wait and see process as we do more research, I guess. I just want to throw that out there for folks. No, that's a good idea. And, you know, Chad, I would I would really encourage anyone working for you know, a larger cannabis company to encourage the company to have a small um, side R&D room, right? So that you can explore this. Obviously, if you had a huge cultivation facility um, or field, you're not going to want to um, blindly apply a stressor to it and because uh, it will affect your yield, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. what, what, what I was saying and what we were seeing is your yield does go down, even though your percent of THC goes up in lots of cases, um, and, you know, it would be great if everyone had a ability to do a, a trial run before they, you know, applied some of this on their whole crop. But yes, you're right. Uh, we are in our infancy and, and people shouldn't get carried away. Well, the biggest challenge I see with facilities is one, they're just swamped with the day to day. And two, they don't always have the tools to apply, you know, proper scientific methodology and rigor and then understand how to collect that data in a way that they can get, um, you know, accurate, statistically significant, um, you know, results. And so uh, that's that's been a challenge. But 
there are so there are some in-house researchers in some of these facilities doing amazing work that I've gotten to talk to over the years. And so hopefully um, more and more of that information will become available over time. But um, yeah, I agree. I think every facility should have should have a little R&D space because we have to continually keep improving. And, and uh, I think that's a great suggestion. But let's uh, let's switch direction here and talk a little bit about UVM and uh, your programs. Can you tell me a little bit about what you guys have going on there? Sure. So um, we, you know, it's been going on for about let's see, it's twenty twenty two. So at least since two thousand and fifteen, we've been doing educational programs. And before that, there was hemp research going on, and Dr. Darby out of the UVM Extension was leading um, research mostly in uh, fiber and seed crops uh, for hemp. Um, but then in 2015, we started, um, we developed a program. And the first program we did was an undergraduate program. Uh, we actually had a lot, a lot more people than undergraduates take it. Um, it was the first uh, cannabis educational program for cannabis course. It was called Medical Cannabis and um, offered by a, a medical school. And from there, we had such high interest in that. That was a, you know, it was back in 2016. It actually ran that January. So it was a in-person, you, you sat in a class, you weren't in front of a computer there. Um, and we had so many people sign up that we had to get a bigger classroom and then we, we kind of had to do it by lottery because we were worried that other people would come in and take up those seats. So we had to give a, a code to have people come in. And we had, I think, five different of our local, you know, media um, channels there recording our first class. It, it, was, it was a scene. Wow. Um, but besides, I know, right? I, I, even Seth Meyers mentioned it uh, late night television. He said something like, oh, UVM's offering a cannabis class. And... <laughs> Hilariously, it did start at 4:20, but it started at 4:25. But you know that was that was a good joke for everyone too. <laughs> yeah. But with with that interest, what we saw is a lot of professionals took it, and that's why we offered it later in the day so that people could take it um, after work. So then we decided to develop a couple um, programs, and the first one we developed was targeted at medical professionals. It was cannabis science and medicine, and uh, it you could earn a uh, continuing medical education. So CMEs with it, it was, I think, you know, close to eight CMEs that you would earn. Um, and, you know, the interest in that grew so much that there was always a wait list. And a lot of people were not in the medical profession. And a lot of people wanted to learn more about the plant biology aspect. So then we developed the cannabis um, plant biology professional certificate. Um, and that one's been filling, especially because in Vermont, they have an upskill program where the state helps um, people uh, gain more professional skills by paying for a couple of their um, programs. And that is one of them. And so we do offer some free webinars, um, you know, not nothing as 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 impressive as yours, Tad, you know, where you have oh, people no. from all over the world talking about these things. <laughs> but uh so, so sometimes, and then there's a community medical program where um, we have different professors come in and talk about their research. And with all this activity, um, like most universities, we started a cannabis center. So ours is the um, is the medical center for cannabis education um, and research. And 
basically what that does is it helps uh, researchers uh, work together because we do have a lot of cannabis research going on at UVM, both in the College of Medicine and in the College of Agricultural Life Science. So, you know, I'm focused on the education with a little bit of research going on. Um, and uh, then I'm, you know, to have some administrative tasks, like directing the programs and the center. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really fun. And oh boy, have things changed since 2015, right? In the last seven years, We've seen an explosion of cannabis science, um, you know, and as well as laws, rules, regulations changing all over the map um, in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah, well, kudos to you guys for kind of starting this process here in the United States with your courses. Um, I wasn't aware you were the first until I was reading about it uh, earlier this week. Um, can you tell me, so if I was a cultivator and I wanted to learn more about cultivation, what, what would that process look like through your, through your school? Right. So there's, there's two, I call them in-person courses, but we can call them matriculating student courses that, you know, you have to be a student or you have to go through the continuing and distance education, which is now called PACE. Um, program to enter. Um, and, and those, those you need to be in person. Um, I mean, obviously the last few years, they're somewhat offered remotely as, um, the pandemic progresses, but one is through the department of plant and soil science. And that is talked by, uh, Scott Lewins and Dr. Heather Darby. And I teach it as well. Um, some, a few courses in it, and that is focused on, um, you know, hemp. Uh, and then the other is the medical cannabis course that I mentioned. And again, that's an in-person pharmacology course focused on the effects of cannabis on the human body. But then we have online. Um, so anyone can sign up. Um, you know, we ask that you have a bachelor degree in science, but we waive that requirement frequently for people that are willing to make the effort to get up to speed um, so that they understand the science enough in the courses. And people definitely do, you know, diverse background. We have a lot of, um, you know, we have pharmacologists and uh, retired, you know, medical professionals, as well as uh, lawyers and business people. And we even have media fellows. So we give out media scholarships, each program for members of the media to take the course for free. And then they have to contribute uh, after the course a little bit um, in that they might come be a guest speaker for the next course and, and share what they've learned. So so those courses are, are wildly accessible. We have we run them twice a year, so in the fall and in the spring. Um, and with that, it's basically uh, there are pre-recorded lectures, so it's asynchronous as well as uh, synchronous live sessions. But if you miss them, that's okay because they're recorded. So it can be something that, you know, we've had people from all over the world, Thailand, um, you know, all over South America take these courses. So we do get a diverse group. And then, like I said, there's um, sometimes there's webinars. There's lots of pre-recorded webinars available. And then we have community medical uh, school programs. But those, again, are in person. I don't think they're remote anymore. Um, so there's lots of ways to get involved and take these courses at UVM. And the nice thing about UVM versus other programs out there is that we stick to 
evidence bases. So in class, we're only presenting um, peer-reviewed published literature or literature that's uh, or research that's ongoing at UVM. We try to not, you know, present anecdotal, and we try to discourage, um, you know, students from from sharing their anecdotal knowledge without saying this is anecdotal knowledge and then here's some research that's backing it up because that's what's so cool is you know people do discover things on their own and they have you know there's this wealth of knowledge from people that have been growing for Mm -hmm. 50 years and then nowadays it seems like some of the research is really backing up what they've already uh, found out so uh, I'm looking specifically at the cultivation one here. It's a professional certificate in cannabis plant biology. Is that is that the one that you're referencing in regards to, uh, say, a cultivator who wanted to take a take a course? Is that the best option? Yes. So if a cultivator wants to take a course, that's the one I suggest. Actually, if anyone wanted to take the course, that is the one I would suggest. And the reason why is because that's the one that dives deep into the plant. Um, it's eight weeks long. You know, the first week is just history, business, law and policy, um, the basics, right? And then we go into basic science and then we deep dive into the plant. We have a week about um, cannabis cultivation. We have a week about post-harvest. We have a week about extraction. And we do have a week about um, how cannabis affects the human body taught by uh, physicians and pharmacologists but most of it is focused on the plant. And in the past, then we would offer our uh, medical cannabis or clinical modules a la carte. And we're just in the process of kind of updating those and we will be offering them again. So if you took cannabis plant biology and then you thought, oh, I really want to know more how cannabis affects the human body, you could then go on and take you know, a module called uh, cannabis and the endocrine system. So I would absolutely say, for anyone interested in cultivation, start with plant biology or anyone in general, start with plant biology, unless you're specific, you know, and just want to learn about how cannabis affects the human body. Okay. Well, we're, we're recording this right now in June. It looks like it starts uh, end of September. Um, it's purely online and an eight week program with a time commitment of about eight to 10 hours per week. And it's a non-credit professional certificate. Does that, I'm, I'm just reading off your website page. Does that all sound correct? That, yep, that is all correct. So, uh, yep, it wraps right before, you know, the U.S. holiday of, holiday of Thanksgiving. Um, and so it runs this fall and then it will run again next spring. Oh, okay. And um, I love that you mentioned here that it's fully online evidence-based program. Uh, that sounds, that sounds wonderful. Um, is there, what sort of research, so you're, many of your professors are teaching and then also doing research. Is there a student component to the research as well? Or is that, um, I, I guess, how does that work at UVM? Yeah, so well, that's a great question. So because it's fully online, you know, the, the participants in the program are not actively doing research at mm-hmm. UVM. Um, you know, we, we have had a lot of students come and tour our glasshouse facility or our, uh, our field research. Um, but the student research component of it is in the second to last week, 
we turn the you know educational component over to the student and they design a um, a presentation. So we utilize a bunch of online um, platforms where you know students are actually recording themselves doing a uh, a presentation for their peers. And a lot of people think that is the, the best part. It's their you know a great learning experience. And we do have people that are presenting on laws or business proposals. But a lot of people think up research projects, and some of them actually go on to do them. Um, and so they're getting feedback from our team of, uh, you know, different subject matter experts on their particular proposed research. And then, obviously, if they do them, we want to be involved and hear about each step. Um, but as far as you know, hands-on, in-person, in the lab, the field, or the glass house, Mm-hmm. This course is not that because um, it's online. Sure. And what sort of uh, feedback have you gotten on the course or any stories of folks who have taken the class um, and utilized that in their professional career? Yeah, I mean, we get we get pretty good feedback from it. Um, it usually fills every every session. And, um, you know, I think people people like the learning experience um, online. You know, a lot of people, it's, it's new to them to learn online like that. Um, but it's, you know, become increasingly popular in the last few years to learn online. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we, here, you know, maybe what I should do is, is tell about some of the people that we have teaching it because, um, you know, that in itself is, is the value of it. People really enjoy uh, getting exposure to the different uh, subject matter experts and professionals we have. And then also the other members of the class. Um, for example, in this, you know, in this last um, plant biology program, we had the um, cultural editor from Rolling Stones and, um, you know, a writer for Forbes and LA times and, um, and then we, you know, we had, we had people who hadn't ever planted a cannabis plant before. We had people that, you know, were well entrenched in the industry. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, some of my colleagues in the industry will say, Oh, Monique, do you know so-and-so? And I'll say, Oh yeah, they took my course. And now they're running, you know, a cultivation center down in Massachusetts. So because it's such a broad group of students that enter and participate, what they do afterwards is equally as diverse. That's wonderful. Well, um, tell me a little bit yeah. about the professors that you work with and, um, and their backgrounds. That would be great to hear. Yeah. So, so I, I teach a couple of the, um, lectures and, you know, my background, I didn't really go super into it because I said I'm a plant biologist, but it's in, um, evolution and diversity. So I teach the taxonomy sections. I'm really into the way cannabis is named and, um, you know, I, you know, love to talk more about that if we ever had time. Um, and then we have Dr. Linda Klumper, um, and she is our clinical pharmacologist. She's the course facilitator. So I'm the director and she's, she plays more of an instructor role and she has a whole team that she works with, um, out of, uh, Canify that she brings, um, and they are, they're all on the pharmacology side. Uh, and she's been working in cannabis for uh, cannabis research for maybe 15 years. Um, she did her PhD in 
uh, the Netherlands on um, cannabinoids. And then we bring in um, a business professor at UVM, Dr. Uh, William Katz-Burrell. He's an associate professor, um, and he's you know been working on the medical side of business for about 25 years. He, he, he worked uh, with the cannabis industry for a little while, too. And then we have um, people in, in agronomy, like Dr. Heather Darby. Um, she's an uh, agronomic and soil specialist for UVM Extension. And she's been doing hemp research for, um, you know, probably close to 10 years. So she originally had a DEI Schedule One license to, to work on hemp before it was allowed um, to be studied without a DEA uh, so Schedule One license. Before I connected with you, I actually had, I was looking through my notes and I had her name listed as someone that I had wanted to connect with for the podcast. So I've, I've been hearing her name for years now. I just... I, I need to reach out, but, um, yeah, I've, I've heard wonderful things about, about the work that, that she's been doing. So that's, that's great. Yeah. And a lot of the work she, she does is with Scott Lewin. And so he is a, um, you know, he does like applied agricultural research and mostly on biological control of agricultural pests. So he also teaches with us. And then we have, um, Dr. John McKay and he's a, uh, a, a chemical person. He he had his PhD in organic chemistry, and he worked with um, the Waters Corporation early on when they were just starting to do extraction. And um, now he's the chief technology officer Newbridge um, Gold Ventures, and he's the founder of Synergistic Technologies. So he's very much entrenched in the cannabis industry, as well as Dr. John McPartland, who is a um, uh, family medicine doctor uh, associated with UVM, but he, um, you know, he wrote a book about cannabis pests and diseases, and he's authored a lot of papers. Um, and so he he works with us in both programs, actually. Uh, with his, he has a master's in plant sciences, and so he, you know, he he does teach some of the the plant stuff as well as some of the endocannabinoid stuff because he is a, a medical professional as well. And then we combined that with some local experts that are in the cannabis industry, um, like the director of one of the labs here in Vermont and um, the director of cultivation of one of the dispensaries who used to be in Vermont and now is in Massachusetts. And I believe moving to Rhode Island soon, um, as many cultivators do, he's making mm. the rounds at different places. So yeah, we blend it. We, we also have a medicinal chem chemist, Wolfgang, Dr. Dossman, Dr. Wolfgang Dossman, and a physician scientist. So MD, PhD, Dr. Carla Freeman, um, for, you know, and this is all in the plant biology program. So as you, as you just heard, you know, we have kind of people from, from, Lots of different aspects from business to medical to chemistry to extraction and people in the field um, at plant soil scientists and pest management people. So we have a, a, a great group, I think. And, um, you know, they're, they're all doing cannabis research kind of on the side or have some associations with the industry as well as uh, some of them have you know, day jobs in the ER at UEM or mm -hmm. studying traumatic brain injury. So it's a great, a great group and they're all passionate about helping people uh, learn more, especially when you have um, an understudied topic like cannabis science.
that that sounds like a wonderful group absolutely um quite an extensive background and so diverse um yeah that it sounds like a great course um thanks for sharing about that you know one thing as you were speaking about your background um well i had two things i thought were interesting i thought the taxonomy thing was interesting and i'd love to touch on that but what really got me interested was uh, your background in in biology and evolution. Um, in the soils that, or the I guess soilless media that we're using, what what the industry calls living soil, but is really um, probably better described as you know very fertile soilless media, um, we see a. a higher, at least qualitatively, higher levels of biomass and activity in these, in these living soils um, than I see in traditional agricultural soils or even, you know, traditional soilless media. Um, when we reuse that media, we tend to, to get better results on the second or third cycle um, I assume as we're establishing more of a functional ecosystem, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, your thoughts on any of that? Huh? Yeah, I guess. I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when you're talking about that, so, so here's my little secret. I also teach in the Galapagos, right? Cause I can't not do that. Cause I love the Galapagos islands. And as you were talking, I was thinking of, uh, island evolution, Galapagos, mm -hmm. because yeah, when an island emerges, right, the first life on it um, is often lichens, and then you get some fern establishment, but it's kind of what I would say you were using, you know, the next round is then you start to get more and more diversity, and so as the island rises, so at some of the highest points on the Galapagos Islands is where we, you know, find the most diversity, and it's because those points have been around the longest. So mm -hmm. perhaps we can relate that to what you just said in that, you know, you're, you're using a soilless medium and soilless cultivation. And, you know, it, it takes a little time to become established because you have those pioneers that are first colonizing it. And um, sometimes it takes those pioneers to attract other, you know, I don't know in this case if it's microbes or, um, you know, abiotic factors for those mm -hmm. to collect, you need the pioneers. And so that, you know, that would make perfect sense from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, and then you probably get to a point that, you know, your, your medium is not as useful, I'm guessing, because some of the material is used up by the plant. Do you find that too, Ted? Well, it's interesting. And so my, my, bachelor's degree was in anthropology. So I love that topic, um, though more on the cultural side, but evolution, I think is fascinating. And then uh, one of the people I work with who also works at a cannabis facility, uh, Dr. Ben Higgins got his PhD in functional ecology, looking at marine systems. So this is an area that I think is just so incredible. And the microbial level at the microbial level, it's just, there's so much we don't know. Um, so I, I really love this topic. I, what we find in, in these soils is we use a large volume of soil, usually in a bed um, rather than a small container. And, and that seems to be critical for establishing the right microbial populations. Um, 
and, and as well as managing fertility. But what we see is every cycle, you know, it, since it's closed environment agriculture, we're, you know, it, it's not, we're not getting the same inputs um, into there as we would say agriculturally outdoors. Um, you know, we're removing organic matter every cycle, we're removing nutrients, and those are leaving the facility in the form of the cannabis biomass. So uh, we have to replace those every cycle. But we find that we, you know, if we are testing the soil um, and managing the media appropriately, we can continue this process um, for multiple years with multiple cycles per year, you know, provided we're managing pests and managing fertility correctly. And then we don't have to move the media in and out of the facility. Um, I don't know from an evolutionary perspective how microbially that might may change or may have an impact. Um, the biggest issue we, we've had to face, it, it, at least that we're aware of, is more uh, managing you know, sodium when the cultivator doesn't have the ability to have a runoff based on the design of their facility. Um, that can be a challenge or certain nutrients can build up. Or if we get something awful like a root knot nematode, um, cannabis aphids, some of these things, depending on the facility's ability to manage them, can be a real challenge too. Mm. Yeah. But around this topic that I think is interesting is the the way we would research it, I think, is really, really tough because th there's so it adds such a layer of variability to or, or the number of variables and vectors to what traditional, you know, agronomy would want to to do at a research level. Um, versus, you know, if I can do research like, uh, you know, Darren Kaplan did with, I think he was using either CocoCore or ProMix, a fairly inert media and chemical mineral salts. Um, that's a much easier experiment for controlling variables than using this biologically active soil uh, and managing it cycle after cycle. So this is sort of a situation where infield or sorry, uh, you know, actual production uh, doesn't really translate well to good research conditions for academia, I guess. Yes, it's, it, well, it depends on the researcher. It, you know, people that are used to working in labs would say there's too many variables, like you just mentioned. Yes. But, um, I mean, there's, a, there's also a way to... Um, to design your experiment to, you know, embrace the variables instead of try to pinpoint them one by one. And it, it does seem like the cannabis microbiome is becoming more popular. There's, you know, been some publications about it recently. Um, we, we were actually doing some studies of it when uh, in the glass houses at UVM when uh, COVID shut us down in March 2020. And we, we actually just didn't resume them because the young man running them um, moved on to a, a different position, but, um, but people are studying the microbiome and, and, you know, I'm thinking that's going to be, uh, completely correlated to what you're talking about too, because as you're, uh, studying the soils and, you know, thinking of how do you translate that into more specific laboratory studies, um, I think that 
you know, the progress that's being made genetically, mm-hmm. where you can test your samples that way, will help with it because it will help eliminate some of the um, guesswork and what variables are affecting it because you can know exactly what's, what's there. Um, but, yeah, so like I said, I think it depends on the researcher and that some people would shy away from that, but other people would, would embrace it with a different experimental design. I think, yeah, I think about this topic a lot. <laughs> so for me, it would have yeah. to be the the control is literally just that, you know, what we're calling living soil or that enriched media um, rather than trying to um, define every variable within the media itself. That would just have to be sort of the control for the experiment. Um, but one of the things related to microbiology is in and of itself is the variability. So you know, I saw some research a while back mm-hmm. around um, how much fluctuation you get in um, soils from a biological perspective in terms of bacteria and fungi and that ratio just based on hydrology um, alone. As the, that was the only variable they were looking at there. Um, but there's so many different things in terms of rhizosphere interactions, hydrology, all these things that affect tilling, that affect um, the biology in the soil how do you feel like it's even possible for us to really um, ever fully understand what's going on or make assumptions based off of the, the microbiome in our, in our soil? Well, I think, you know, I think I'm going to answer that like a politician. So <laughs> I think what you can think is, I mean, look at grapes, right? And so, you develop a, a chore, right? And so as cannabis becomes accepted as more of an agricultural crop, you, instead of trying to pinpoint exactly what's changing, you know, the production of every secondary metabolite, um, you, you categorize it in some way and you name it, you know, using, using some kind of system. The problem is I think you have to create a system and everyone has to agree Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to know there's going to be some inconsistencies, but you know, that changes when you're trying to use something therapeutically, right? Because, you know, wine not, wine is not necessarily used therapeutically. So if there's a little bit of inconsistency, you know, they're still going to be able to determine the alcohol level. And so they slap that on the bottle, but it might not have the same um, taste that you would expect but it's not going to uh, change the way, you know, it's, it's helping somebody therapeutically because it's not being used that way. So I think there's two factors, right? And that if we really truly want to understand what's going on in the cannabis plant, some of it is going to have to be done in a very controlled setting. Mm-hmm. But if we want to think of it as an agricultural crop and not necessarily something that's used solely therapeutically, then we have to embrace it and just come up with, you know, some kind of um, system that can categorize it like we have with, with wine. So taking that to a microbial level, I know right now that we have classifications around certain bacteria, for example, as being you know, phosphorus solubilizing or nitrogen fixing. Um, so, we, so some of those sort of classes already exist. Um, but as I understand it, a lot of times it's a, um, 
I guess, a sort of a symbiotic relationship where it's more than one microbe working together that creates the sum of something greater than its parts. Um, how do we really begin to classify and understand what's going on there? Right. Well, with that, I mean, I think we do need to scale back and look at things one-on-one. -on -one. For example, um, you know, people are using mycorrhizae with cannabis. Do they even colonize the roots? You know, I haven't seen publications that say, yes, you know, you could say that if you add mycorrhizal to the soil that you can get more yield. But like you're saying, there's a lot going on in the soil. So it might not just be that. But if we go really in depth, you know, and look microscopically at the roots, do we see uh, colonization from uh, mycorrhizae? So I think for that, you know, if you if you really want to science this, you have to you have to do things, um, you know, in a controlled method and answer the very basic questions first. Like, does mycorrhizal colonize um, cannabis roots? Mm -hmm. And then you can move on. Um, you know, what about rhizobium? You know, are there are there are there little sacs developing like they do uh, in Fabaceae, so in, in the pea family, where you're having nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Probably not, I'm guessing. But just one-on-one, -on -one, like, like, like we did with all other crops, right? That, I mean, that makes sense. Um, there's just more and more microbial products and biostimulants coming out targeting cannabis. And, I mean, agriculture in general, it's a, it seems to be the next wave of fertilizers and IPM options is really the microbial stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm excited to see where it goes, but it also seems like there's a lot we still don't know. And we may be jumping the gun like you're suggesting on, on some of these products. Yeah, it, it's hard to know. And it's actually fairly simple experiments. We were doing it again when um, we were looking specifically and we actually weren't seeing a ton of colonization. That's why I bring it up of mycorrhizal. Oh, um, really? So, yes, but, you know, we couldn't, I, I can't, that's not published, that, you know, hasn't been repeated in triplicate because um, when the pandemic shut it down, we just never picked up that piece of of research. But it's, it's a great question, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you compare it, it's an easy experiment. You plant uh, something that you know is colonized alongside cannabis, use the same product, look at the roots, stain them under a microscope and see, is there, is there colonization? And if there isn't, then how could you say that that particular product is the one benefiting cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's a simple experiment and I don't think it's been done yet. I haven't seen a publication, but um, it, it could have popped up recently. So like I said, you know, we just, we have, publications now on um, cannabis microbiome so we, we know what's going on there at least yeah you know I was very skeptical of mycorrhizal fungus in cannabis due to the short crop cycle and high pea levels in our soils and some of those and the, the rampant use of, of various trichoderma um, but then I spoke to uh, Dr. Yoram Kapolnik I had him on the podcast he's a mycorrhizal research out of Israel and uh, he kind of changed my mind on it but again I haven't actually seen a lot of public research public published research sorry on this topic either um, 
can I, can you explain a little more about what you, what you guys found? So you were using a commercially available, um, endo mycorrhizal product, I'm guessing. Um, and it, and you weren't getting, yeah. um, infection, you know, and I should probably take a step back on that because again, it was like such in its infancy when, when that, when that research program got shut down, um, just because, you know, people, mm-hmm. um, stopped coming into the, the glass houses and we just never took it back up. But, um, yeah, I mean, we were applying, or I'd have to go back look back in my notes. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't me doing it. It was, um, my research assistant and he was applying, um, commercially available products and looking at them under a microscope and comparing them. I think the plant that he was using as the control, um, actually don't remember which one, what he was using as the control. So this is, this is something that I probably shouldn't go into because I don't, I don't remember enough about it. It's been a long two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, um, it was seeming like there, whatever product we were using was not, um, going to really, uh, be present in the roots. Well, you know, regardless of the results of the research, you bring up this interesting point though, that, um, you know, we do at the end of the day, if we can default to available research, that's always a good idea. And if the research doesn't exist, it's always something we can test ourselves. And even if you don't have the ability to, you know, stain roots under a microscope, you can absolutely trial in you know mycorrhizal fungus in your facility on some of your crop and not on others and see if you get a plant response in regards to disease resistance or um, biomass increases that make it worthwhile to use it rather than just you know blanketly applying all of these products and assuming that you're getting a certain result based on a you know sales pitch or something for example so um yeah yeah Chad, I agree with you. Applying the scientific method is always a good idea when you're trying new products, but I know that people can't always do that. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we had talked to a lot of different lighting companies too, and it was the same thing. People were claiming that certain spectra did this and this, that, um, but the research isn't really there to back it up. So, um, you know, using a different wavelength on a plant definitely has an effect. But mm-hmm. if we can't definitively say what that effect is, you know, maybe you don't want to go ahead and, and switch all your lighting to a different wavelength. Um, and it's hard because this is, you know, I feel like with the whole cannabis industry, everything got ahead of itself, right? It's the same with um, medicinal cannabis used therapeutically is um, a lot of anecdotal information was put out there and, you know, states were making rules and regulations and they were having to go off, uh, anecdotal evidence. Um, mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily, uh, true when it's, when it's tried, um, and replicated using the scientific method, there's just no scientific rigor or truth to it. Yeah. Well, I know, I know we're getting short on time. Would you have time to just talk a little bit about cannabis taxonomy and sort of, um, your thoughts on it. Um, we've had people on the past talking sort of about how this idea of um, indica and sativa are is not accurate and sort of an outdated terminology. Um, 
can do you have time to just shed a little bit light on on that topic though from a taxonomy perspective Chad, i always have time to talk about taxonomy <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> absolutely and i am wishing i you know had had reviewed some of those earlier podcasts just to see people's opinions um, i can say one thing we absolutely teach in our um in all of our programs is that scientifically um the species uh cannabis is cannabis sativa l mm-hmm. um we don't you know we don't uh we don't teach cannabis indica. We teach about it that, um, you know, Lamarick used it when he named, uh, the plant. Um, you know, Dr. McPartland actually gives, um, some taxonomy information he's published, uh, in that area as well. And, um, you know, he, he goes into great detail in one of his publications about, uh, some of the problems with those scientific names that are out there. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, you know, it doesn't seem like anyone has been able to morphologically, genetically, or chemically um, categorize plants as cannabis indica or cannabis sativa in any kind of consistent fashion. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to use cannabis indica and sativa um, in kind of this popular vernacular as it's used right now in um, dispensaries, um, that's a different story. But the problem is, you know, if you look at the way it's used and you then try to look at the chemicals that are found in those plants, there's nothing that really is categorizing things as indican sativa consistently chemically. Um, and like I said, morphologically or genetically. So those names should really not be applied. And um, there's, 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 a funny, there's a funny thing we talk about in our classes because uh, I think Dr. McPartland pointed it out um, in one of his publications is that, you know, one cannabis cup had, I'm forgetting the strain name, uh, let's say um, Jack Herrera win as a sativa and then two years later it won as an indica. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's the problem right there. And, and maybe, you know, it's a, it's kind of a placebo effect where somebody thinks they're getting something up lifting because it's sativa and then it makes them feel uplifted but there just isn't really a scientific basis to it right now that makes sense and it seems like genetically all these plants are so mixed now um there really isn't anything that one could say is purely one or the other but you know we for years you know people would say oh that plant's a sativa based on its growth habit or based on the the therapeutic effects they may receive from it um, and vice versa. And it was always the assumption and it wasn't until, um, well, frankly, until I talked to some people on this podcast that I really learned the difference there. And interestingly enough, what we're seeing from a consumer perspective um, with blind, blind research is that folks, when, um, you know, people are using THC as a purchasing decision in terms of higher THC being, better but when consumers when you take away the thc percentage and just give them uh, the cannabis uh, through a double blind study the ones that are having the best effects are not the highest thc products um, which is interesting so um, i'm I'm hoping the industry will change its terminology and come up with something that's a little bit better but i don't know what that looks like I've, i've had some longer conversations with folks way uh way smarter on this topic than me but i I think it's really interesting 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem. It's, you know, when, when you have an industry that has this deep roots and some of them aren't based on, um, you know, what what uh, nescient industries are, you know, usually based on is, is oversight and um, rules, then you have something that's hard to get rid of. And the truth is, I don't know, you know, I'm not in marketing at all. And I have no idea how you would convince um consumers to not want strain names or uh, indica or sativa. But yes, the truth is, you know, there's published literature out there where people have tried to separate out indicas and sativas out of, you know, dispensaries in California, for example, Mm -hmm. and there's no consistency. Um, And then even strain names, you know, what you're getting, um, at one dispensary under one strain name is definitely not what you're getting at, a, at another. And part of it goes back to the growing process. So say you have an, a genetically identical plant, but it's grown in different uh, methodologies, even, you know, say nutrient, uh, light wavelength, mm-hmm. um, time of harvest, or even post-harvest, the way it's stored. Those can all affect the chemicals in it and make it that you have an inconsistent product um, that's labeled the same. And that's the problem is all if all you're labeling it is these names, it's not the same thing because they're um, the botanical rules of nomenclature are not being followed. Um, there is, you know, a cultivated plant code and there are, you know, hemp cultivars, but we are not there with with marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be clear, I think you can tell apart hemp and marijuana, right? Our, our government thinks so too, by, by setting this limit on the amount of THC. And there does seem to be two groupings of plants, ones that are high in THC and ones that are low. Mm-hmm. Um, now, clearly there's all sorts of hybrids, but going back to the indica and sativa debate, I think that's going to be a hard one, um, to ever really truly separate. And if there ever were two, um, different cannabis species before, um, you know, they were domesticated. I think it would be really hard to, to undomesticate them at this point and Mm -hmm. go back to, you know, their ancestral forms. Um, because right now everything can hybridize marijuana and hemp can hybridize, you know, every strain can hybridize and produce a viable offspring. Mm -hmm. And that is the very basic concept of, you know, the definition of a species, it's the biological species concept. If you can have two organisms mate and produce a viable offspring, then you don't have separate units. Um, and in that case, species. Yeah. I mean, even the use of the term strain versus uh, cultivar is really um, just an example of the nomenclature in our industry and how, how, you know, what's become common is not necessarily what's botanically correct. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah, the correct term would be cultivar, but you have to prove, um, you know, consistency with cultivars and that, you know, if you're getting something that's considered a cultivar and you plant it, you can know what you would expect. Mm. And cannabis industry is not there. So this name strain, which actually has no, I don't even know the origin of why we call things strains, but it doesn't seem there's nothing scientific about it. I think because of things like bacteria, it probably just was a carryover from from there. Right? Yeah, that's a good one. In the black mm-hmm. market, um, I, I don't know, but um, 
wouldn't it be called a cultivar because it's not a variety because it is a it is something that's been cultivated by humans um with an intended purpose as i understand it from a botanical perspective but i could be wrong um what else what else would we call it even with the genetic diversity well, that you see across you know a given plant you'll call something a cultivar once it hits uh that you know kind of standardization that a cultivar would require because that is you know cultivars um it doesn't, so you have a, you have a species, right? And then you'd have a cultivar. So if we take corn, for example, like ZMAs, and then if you're buying a cultivar of ZMAs, you'll have that half, that half print and it will say like super sweet, mm-hmm. right? And so that's eventually what cannabis should be. It should be cannabis sativa with the cultivar name. Um, and that's, you know, that's what people would be used to buying in current agriculture is a cultivar and you plant super sweet and you're not going to get flower corn, right? You're going to get corn on the cob that you eat. Yeah. Um, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not really happening with, with marijuana right now. Um, uh, hemp, you can definitely import hemp seeds like finiola, for example, is a cultivar of hemp um, and you can get what you expect. Um, but, and I think part of that goes back to um following the rules for uh, the botanical nomenclature, because there's ones for cultivars too, um, and then and then oversight of following those rules. That's I didn't know. And I didn't know all that. That's really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, we've been talking for quite a while. I know you're, you're busy. Um, I just want to thank you for your time today on the show, and I hope folks will check out the... Um, program that you have and I'll include links to all that on the podcast page if anyone wants to go back and I'm going to try and track down what research I can that you mentioned as well and uh, put that on there too so thank you for your time today sure it was a it was a joy thank you so much for having me Kyle That was Dr. Monique McHenry with the University of Vermont Cannabis Science and Medicine and Plant Biology Certificate Programs, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.